Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not what the scripture saith of Elias? How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I'm left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, then at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more works. What then? Israel hath not abandoned which he seeketh for, but the election has obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see, and the bow down their their back alway. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather though their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to immolation them that which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be? But life from the dead? For if the first root be holy, the lump is holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not the branches, but if thou boast, thou boastest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spareth not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity but toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if it were cut off of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature unto a good olive tree, how much more shall thee, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I, would, for I would not, brethren, that we, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceit, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. 
for the gifts and the calling of God are without recompense. Whereas ye in times past have not believed God, ye have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. Even so, have these also now believed that through your mercy they may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? For who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For to him, for of him, and through him, and to him, are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we enter this time of worship, Lord, that you would search our hearts, each and every one of us, especially this week as we look upon the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us. Through the ministry of his three years on, of ministry until this week when it all came to an end which was only the beginning for all of us. Father, I pray that you would search us out this week. Let your Holy Spirit have a work in us to revitalize those times when we first came to know you. And this was such a wondrous mystery that was revealed to us. And Father, again, I pray for a pastor this morning as he brings forth your word. Those Sunday school teachers that are uh, teaching the youngsters and the teens. Lord, that you would... Uh, give them the Holy Spirit to speak through their voices. And again, we thank you, Lord, for this time together of fellowship and worship. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Lee. You had a, you had a long, longer chapter there. I appreciate you plowing through that there. And uh, hearing the scripture read out loud is, is so good for our souls, whether we realize it or not. Um, that was a something that Paul told Timothy was to be a regular practice of the early church, the public reading of Scripture. Um, of course, their Scriptures would have been the Old Testament Scripture. Here we have the whole canon. We're able to read this whole le- uh, this, this letter here and uh, this chapter, chapter 11, here this morning. And so appreciate you uh, uh, following that, that uh, ordinance of God's Word, so the public reading of Scripture here. Um, I also want to say here before we get into the text... Um, this morning, um, that on Monday, a, uh, a brand new uh, stove arrived at our house. And I understand someone was behind organizing that event and uh, did that for my birthday. And I want you to know that I appreciate that so much, probably not as much as my wife does, um, but I appreciate, appreciate that so much. All of our appliances here were the factory appliances that came with the home in 2002 when it was built. And they're all they're all going down one after the other here. And the stove was the last uh, last thing recently here. Deserving and really appreciate that that thoughtfulness and the organization of that um, behind the scenes. That uh, was a surprise here. Appreciate that so much. Well, this uh, this last week of, of Jesus' life. This is Palm Sunday. This is, this is what the writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John spend the most time on in their books. Mark spends half of his book on this last week of Jesus. So this week's really important in the story of the Bible. 
And it's key as, as to what happened that week. Today, of course, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Day two, on Monday, Jesus clears the temple. Day three, on Tuesday, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, and he gives us all the discourse there. Day four, there's nothing mentioned in the Gospels that we're aware of of what happened on Wednesday. It's silent. Day five, the Passover and the Last Supper on Thursday. The Upper Room Discourse, you think of John 13 through 17. As Jesus is with his disciples. Of course, day six. The trial, the crucifixion, the death, and the burial on Friday. Day seven. A body, a corpse, and a tomb. And day eight. Resurrection Sunday. My neighbors invited us over to help with their last batch of maple syrup for the season. And, uh, they had just recently got a donkey uh, here, they're farmers, and so they let us see the, the, the little donkey. It's a cold in people's memories and minds to Palm Sunday. And so I was able to talk with them a little bit about Palm Sunday and what that meant. And they jokingly asked if I could borrow the donkey for today uh, here, but obviously that didn't work out. Um, and so today is the day that John chapter 12 records when Jesus rode on the donkey into the city of Jerusalem and call it Palm Sunday, showing he is the rightful king of the world. And what happened was that news spread that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem and a big crowd of, of people who were there for Passover, Passover visitors, they took some palm branches and they went down the road to meet Jesus. And they shouted, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and hail to the King of Israel. And they're, they're praising God during that time. And John writes that Jesus was just fulfilling the prophecy that Zechariah, the prophet, Israeli prophet, had written years, centuries before, that was telling the people uh, of Jerusalem to not be afraid because their king was coming, riding on the donkey's colt. And so there were a lot of people that day that were receiving him. And at the same time, just a few days later, right, on Friday, there was a contingent of people who were going to say crucify him. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it, why some could accept him as king and others wanted to plot his death. But John gives the answer to that question just a few verses later in that same chapter, John chapter 12, that says, despite all the things that Jesus had done, most of the people still didn't believe him. And he said it's exactly what Isaiah the prophet had predicted. Who has believed our report? And he quotes Isaiah 53, just like Paul does in Romans chapter 10, we saw last week. And then he records again um, uh, Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, speaking about how the Lord has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts to Isaiah's message so they can't see and can't be healed. And John says there, he's referring to Jesus himself in Isaiah. Because he saw the future and was speaking of the Messiah's glory. And actually that brings us to our text this morning. Romans chapter 11. Where we've been fighting for this answer. Is what's going on with Israel since they were the covenant people? The people that God made that covenant with through Abraham. That he's going to make a great nation. And that through them all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. He's going to bless them and then bless through them. Here, That's always been God's pattern with those 
who are, or who are his people, believers here. And why, though, were there so few Jews believing in the Messiah and many more Gentiles that were? And so in Romans 9, he shows us that God has surprising ways that he works um, and that Israel's hardness, um, uh, he's working through that because Israel was stumbling. They refused to believe in the Messiah. And then the Gentiles are bursting through this open door of mercy at a much faster rate. And the Jewish believers here in, these, in this church of Rome that Paul's writing to here, and the Gentile believers in Rome may have started thinking, oh, there's no hope for Israel. And that God's done with them. And that the Gentiles are, 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 are God's special people now. And in this Roman church, there are some arrogant attitudes of, I'm better than you, between some Jewish and Gentile believers. You can see this start to play out in Romans 14 and 15. And instead of seeing themselves as brothers and sisters both washed by the blood of Christ and given new life in His resurrection, they're suspicious of each other and not thinking of the other's good. And so Paul begins in Romans chapter 11 with this question, has God rejected His people Israel? And the answer that he gives is a short answer that he's going to unfold throughout the rest of the chapter here. The answer he gives is absolutely not. There's more to the question for that. There's some, many actually within Israel who have stumbled by not believing that Jesus is their true Messiah, the crucified and risen Messiah. But God is not finished with Israel, and there will be a day when the door of mercy to Israel has, is wide open. And so the way Paul works through this passage is a little different than what we're used to doing. We're used to kind of saying, okay, A and B and C, and then here's our conclusion D here. He's taking more of a spiral approach here. He keeps circling around here to a particular point that God's not done with Israel. He keeps pounding on that point here and, and spiraling around it that God has a future for Israel that's based on his original promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 to Abraham, and he's going to get it done. And it's kind of hard to outline here, and so we're going to work through the passage and bring it to a, a response here of worship. And so the question here is, has God failed in his covenant to Abraham? Has he failed? Has God rejected his people? It seems like that door is just barely cracked open here. And Paul's going to say, yes, there is a remnant. There's a remnant. There are Jewish people who are coming to Jesus, Messiah. I've met them, have you? And in Romans 11, 1, he says, I say then, has God cast away his people? And here's the strongest answer he can give in the Greek. God forbid. That's how our translators translated it. There's different ways to translate it. Um, but that's how it's been translated. God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Has God rejected his people? Answer, no. See Paul. Who's Paul? He's a Benjamite of the Benjamites. He's of the tribe of Israel. In Philippians 3, he talks about his pedigree. He was zealous. He's an Israelite through and through here. But you know what God did to Paul. God changed his heart. And opened his eyes to see that he didn't need to act in, 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 in vengeance against these believers who saw Jesus as Messiah. No, they were right. He was wrong. And so... Paul comes to faith in Jesus Christ in the book of Acts and 
becomes this apostle here, uh, mostly to the Gentiles, but his heart is for, the, for his own brethren. We saw that in chapter 10, verse 1. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. We saw at the beginning of chapter 9, I would wish myself would be accursed if it would mean my brethren would come to Jesus. So there is a remnant. How do we know that? Because Paul. See Paul. Next, see Israel's history. God has not cast away his people which he foreknew. No, you're not. But the scripture says of Elijah how he makes intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and dug down your altars, and I'm left alone, and they seek my life. But what says the answer of God to him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. What he's saying is this. Here. While there is a hardening here. The truth is that what's happened um, here is seen in a little foretaste in a situation in Israel's history. You remember who was king during Elijah's ministry? Ahab and Jezebel. It was a dark time. A wicked, wicked king. And the nation was wicked. They were turning to Worship uh, the God of the Canaanites here, a Baal, a God that the Canaanites would worship who they thought would bring fertility to the land, and that's what Israel was turning to. And Ahab and Jezebel had, had raised up these, these, their own religious cult here to Baal and Israel, and they had their own priests and prophets to them. And you remember the showdown on the mountain there. God brought fire down and they killed the prophets of Baal. And then word got out here after that spiritual high that Jezebel was living. And she was going to hunt down Elijah and kill him. And so Elijah runs away, scared for his life. And he flees and he says, am I the only one left? The only one who's going to stand for the Lord here? And God says, nope, you're not. There's 7,000 others. There's a remnant. There's a remnant who are faithful to me. And there's been a remnant here. And Paul's using that as an illustration to say, if there was then, there is now as well. There's a remnant here. So there is a remnant because of Paul. There is a remnant because of Israel's history. And there's a remnant because look at verse 5. Even so, at this present time, also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And of grace, and it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace... It's no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. In other words, there is, a, there is a, a group of Jewish people who have come to Jesus because of God's kindness. They have come to Jesus here and they have not stumbled over Him. And they are believers. Because there's a remnant, a small portion of Jewish believers in the Messiah, then obviously there's a large portion of Jewish people who don't know Jesus. And Paul's going to remind us again why that's true. And so he says in verse 7, What then? Israel has not obtained that which he seeks for, but the election has obtained it, and the rest were blinded. And he's going to anchor this in the Old Testament Scriptures, according as it is written from Deuteronomy 29, God has given them the spirit of slumber. They're asleep. 
eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear. To this day. And David says in Psalm 69, Let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense or reward to them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. And here's what he's saying. He's going to come up with it. This is a, he's, he, he uses a, a concept and an idea here that he's, he's used in, in, in chapter 9 and 10 about a hardened, a hardened. That idea of hardening, even the word that's used in the Greek there, is the idea of being petrified. Petrified. Turned hearts of stone. Turned to stone. Because they don't want to believe. And so in verse 8, he quotes from the law in Deuteronomy 29 to say that God's given Israel what they wanted a stupor, a spiritual stupor here, sleep. So they never really see or hear the truth concerning God. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 29, which is, which is Moses' speech to Israel before they cross into the promised land. It's a part of the covenant blessings and curses in Deuteronomy 29. And Moses is, 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 is eager that Israel obeys the law and enjoys the blessings, but he suspects they're not going to do so. And God's, God, God is going to dull Israel's heart to the law because of their unbelief. He's going to say, okay, your will be done. And consequently, they're going to receive the curses. And, he, and, he, and, he, and, and Paul here in Romans 11 is, is showing that Moses and Isaiah's worst fears come true. Israel's blind to God. And then he quotes from, in verse 9 and 10 from Psalm 69, where David's writing about his enemies. And David's saying, one day my enemies are going to be judged by the Lord for betraying me. And in Psalm 69 here, Paul's saying, and that applies to Jesus' as and the idea here is that Jesus has been betrayed by his people Israel. And God has, has said to Israel, okay, this is what you want. Here, here is a, here is a, 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 a stupor, a, a slumber here upon Israel. And you're going to reap the curses that I, I, I promised here. And you're probably sitting here at this point today and wondering, well, how is this going to turn out? How is this going to line up with God's promise in Genesis 12? And it's a puzzle that if we had to make it up and didn't know the rest of the story, we couldn't come up with the answer to without God. Why are these Jewish people asleep in the light? Why are so many Gentiles come, come pouring through the gates here? Well, Israel's asleep at the gate. Will Israel be restored? And the answer he's going to work up to is this. Yes, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so in verses 11 through 12, he's going to talk about Israel's failure. Here, he says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Is there a finality to this? They're, they're out of the picture. And again, he uses that strong word and says, God forbid. By no means. But rather, through their fall, and this is how God in His power uses even wrong, people's wrong choices here to bring glory to Himself. He says, God forbid, rather through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles for to bro provoke them to jealousy. The Gentiles now are receiving what God is going to give to Israel for the rest of the world. And what he's saying here is this, you as Gentiles, as a, a predominantly Gentile room here, not Jewish room here, 
Because you've come to Jesus here through this door of mercy. Now, one of your tasks is to provoke your Jewish friends or neighbors, if you know them. We don't have as many here in this particular area here of the, of, of the world in the corner of Maine, but they're around us. To provoke them to jealousy. In other words, you might say, provoke them to jealousy doesn't sound like a good thing, right? The idea is this. You have been grafted into what God has promised Israel here, the spiritual blessings here. And your uh, uh, love for Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, ought to give them a holy curiosity and a holy kind of jealousy, a coveting of what you have that they should have. And so he says this in verse 12. Think about this. And he keeps kind of dropping these, these hints along the way of what God's going to do for Israel. Listen to what he says. If the fall of them be the riches of the world, results in Gentiles coming to Jesus, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. So what he's setting us up here to understand is this. God has not done for Israel. Imagine if Israel as a whole comes to Jesus, what that's going to mean. If the fall resulted in this, the rejection resulted in this, God opening this door of mercy, imagine what they're receiving their Messiah is going to do for the world here. And now he's going to turn his eyes to the Gentile people, as Phoebe might be reading this letter in the household churches here, that Paul had given her to deliver. Now her eyes are going to be upon the Gentile believers in the world. And here's what she says, For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I, might, as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, that I magnify my office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation or jealousy them which are my flesh, my fellow Jewish people, and might save some of them. So here's what he's saying. There's a reminder here about the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul's saying, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. And one of the reasons I am the apostle to the Gentiles as a Jewish man is so that it causes jealousy, like I've just talked about here, provokes my fellow kinsmen to see that God is pouring mercy on the Gentiles. And God's opened that door here. That door that he's, that, 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 uh, that, uh, um, uh, to the, to, the, to the Jewish people is not slammed shut. There's a trickle coming in here. And Paul's hoping that Gentiles come to the Lord, that, that his own people will come to the Lord too, that they, they will, it will trickle in here. And he repeats what he said already in verse 15, that the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world. What shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? <clears throat> and he's going to anchor it in a couple things here. He's going to talk about, you know, all the trees going to talk about uh, 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 dough um, here in verse 16. And he's going to talk about first fruits. <clears throat> so I want you to harken back in your mind to the patriarchs of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Are those people perfect people? They were stallions, <laughs> Right? They didn't do anything to deserve God's kindness. God showed kindness to them, right? And over time, their lives didn't change, didn't they? 
What he's saying is this. They're like the representative model here for the rest of Israel. They were the first fruits of the harvest. They were that lump of dough. They were the roots of that tree. And what God's, what Paul's saying with this, and I know this isn't, you know, this stuff, this stuff isn't like easy milk to drink this morning here. This is, he's, he's making an argument here, is this. That if the first roots came, God's going to bring the rest of the harvest. And if dough came, the rest of that dough is going to be baked and it's going to produce a loaf. And if the roots of that olive tree grew, the rest of the tree is going to grow as well. And he's giving us that picture to help us understand that there is a future for God's chosen people, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, the Israelites. Here's what he's going to say. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, now he's referring to those who stumble over Jesus here. And you, being the wild olive tree, you Gentiles, were grafted in, cut a a little chunk out of of the trunk of the tree, and, and put in a wild olive branch into that cultivative olive tree of Israel. That's the Gentiles. He's showing how we fit. Right? Notice it's not the other way around, is it? Not saying there's this wild olive tree and God's taking a few Jewish branches and putting it in there. He's saying this has been God's story all along, Old Testament here. And God in his mercy has brought you into this story here. And you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them partakers of the root and fatness of the olive tree. You are enjoying the blessings that God gave to Israel here. Boast not against the branches. But if you boast, you bear not the root, but the root, you. You are not supporting the root here. The root is God's promise that he made to Israel. Israelite people, you're not, you're not holding that up. That's holding you up, is what he's saying. And so here's his point here. <clears throat> Gentiles, God's grafted you into this tree here of God's promise to Israel. He's brought you in. By the way, this is where I want to be careful and help you understand that he's not replacing Israel here. He's bringing you in to what his plan always was. Okay? And, there might be a temptation for Gentiles to say, oh, like the church has done through many centuries, and say, look at us. God's done with Israel. And chuck them out. Right? There might be that temptation to say, here we are. Oh, you poor broken branches here. How pathetic you are. But Paul says this, boast not against the branches. But if you boast, you bear not, you don't support the root, but the root you, you will say that the branches are broken off, that I might be grafted in, made a part of it. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Why? For if God spared not the natural branches of Israel, take heed lest he also spare not you. 
He's saying this. He's saying, okay, imagine the tables are flipped here. You say God's done with Israel because he broke off branches that didn't believe, put them away here. And so that means he's done with Israel. Guess what? He can do the same thing with you. And so you better stay to Jesus. You better stay loyal to Jesus here. He's the thing that brings us all together. Take heed, lest he also spare not you. So Paul's really saying this. Watch out. Now, pastorally, why is he doing this to this Roman church? Why do they need to be reminded of this? Remember? What would you say? Why, why would they need... Why, does, why, why did this, does this church... These clusters of people here in these perhaps five household churches here... Um, when you read Romans 16 here, why would they need to hear this on a practical level? There's some of this that's going on, right? And what does this always come from? James tells us, right? James tells us we do what we do because we want what we want. There's pride that's going on. He's saying... God has a way to trim up pride here. And the posture of our heart needs to be a heart of humility because we understand God is merciful to us. Remember the Pharisee and the publican? What was the difference in their prayers? God, look how great I am, right? What a great gift you got when you let me into your kingdom. Right, basically? And what's the publican saying? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the only thing you can say. And that's where Paul's driving our hearts to. God, it's your mercy. It's your kindness. You included me in this. I can't even comprehend it here. So he's, there's, a, there's a pastoral uh, point to this. He's not just giving us dead, empty, you know, here's some facts you need to know. Is God done with Israel? It's to engender in us a humility, a heart for God. And so now he's going to talk about the mystery and severity of God. Look at verse 22. Behold, therefore, the the goodness or the kindness and severity of God. On them which fell... Those Israelite branches that were broken off. Severity. He's true to his character, isn't he? But towards you, Gentiles, kindness. If you continue in his kindness or goodness, otherwise you also shall be cut off. There's a warning here, isn't there? And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. You see how just God is either way. Not because he's got favorites. He says this is the way it is, right? Okay. And later on, he's not going to say, oh, Gentile, no, Jews now, no. No, that's not how he works. He's saying this is, this is, this is, this is the way. This is the narrow way. This is the door, right? Broad's the way that leads to destruction. This is the way in here. And he's going to be true to his character here. And he says this in verse 23, And they also, they but abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. 
For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? You know what he's saying? Saying, not that anything is hard for God, but he's saying, it was harder to bring Gentiles into the family than it is going to be to bring Jews into the family. Verse 25, for I would not, I don't wish this, brethren, that you would be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, and you might want to circle this word, will be reached, and then Israel will be brought in as well. We don't know God's timeline here, but just a little side note here. And I think this is reflected also in Second Peter. That as we make disciples, we are hurrying the coming of the Lord. And then verse 26. And so, the result, therefore, all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, quoting from Isaiah 59, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant to them, Jeremiah 31, when I shall take away their sins. Speaking of that day when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, Israel as it, as it exists, the Jewish people as they exist, the time of this, whatever the timing of this, when the timing of this happens, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And instead of stumbling over that, they will run to him. When the Messiah returns in his glory to set up his kingdom, they will not stumble over him, but they will turn to him. You can illustrate it like this. In 1941, there was a lady named Violet Bailey. And her and her fiancé, Samuel Booth, were strolling through the English countryside. They were deeply in love and they were engaged to be married. And she had a diamond engagement ring that was sparkling on her finger. Obviously her most treasured possession. And all of a sudden the romantic bliss suddenly ended. One of them said something that got them into an argument. Hurt the other. There was an argument that happened. Then it escalated. And at a point during the argument, Violet got so angry that she pulled that diamond engagement ring off her finger. He drew, she drew back her arm and she threw it with all her might into the field alongside the road on the countryside. And so the ring sailed through the air, fell to the ground, and it nestled to the grass, uh, under the grass in such a way that it was impossible to see. And Violet and Samuel kissed and made up. And they walked and walked through that field the rest of the day hunting for that lost ring. And they never found it. And then they got married two months later. Anybody else have a story like this? <laughs> <laughs> and they had a child. And eventually that child had a child, so they had a grandson. And part of the lore of that family story was the loss of this engagement ring. Well, Violet and Samuel grew old together, and in 1993, Samuel died. Fifteen years after that passed, but that ring was still in the family story here. It wasn't forgotten. And one day, Violet's grandson got an idea. Perhaps he could find his grandma's ring with a metal detector. 
And so he bought one and went to the field where his grandma Violet had hurled her most precious possession 67 years earlier. And he turned on his metal detector and he began to crisscross the field, waving that detector over the grass. And after two hours of searching, he found what he was looking for. And he brings home the diamond ring to his grandmother Violet with joy and pride, and he put it on her finger. And she was obviously astonished because that treasured possession had come home. And that's what Paul's envisioning here with Israel. A reunion. A reunion. You see, God's heart has never left Israel. And out of this plan here, and listen, you can't write better stories than this if you really think about it. To us, we know it, right? So we're used to it. But think about it. Paul saying here, revelation that they hadn't known what God's going to do. To, he's already flipped the tables with Israel. That's chapter chapter 9 here. And, it, and their hearts are hardened just like that pagan King Pharaoh's heart was. And the Gentiles are coming and being swept into the kingdom. And then in chapter 10 he's saying, it's this message and the messengers. This is why Israel's heart is hardened to it because of these two things here. And Gentiles are coming into the kingdom. But then now in chapter 11 he's saying, God's also going to flip it again. God's ways are past finding out. This puzzle's been put together by the master. We couldn't make this up. How many of you like to do puzzles? A few of you. I kind of lost my um, appetite for puzzles after I had to put together a thousand-piece black-and-white puzzle <laughs> of the, the guys who were eating lunch on the steel beam of the Rockefeller, Mobilia Rockefeller Center. Black and white. And it was missing the last piece. <laughs> so, the puzzles are not... That was one of the most disappointing things in my life. <laughs> but they do have a World Puzzle Championship every year at locations around the globe. And in 2012, the event was held in Croatia, and it drew 145 contestants from 26 countries. And there's an article in Time magazine. You have these people are these are connoisseurs of puzzles. I mean, uh, quote: They eat, dream, and on rare occasions when they sleep, they dream about puzzles full time. They are fanatics about popular around the globe. Well, the guy who writes, writes the crossword every day for the New York Times, Will Shorts, um, says this. He said, we're faced with problems every day in life and we almost never get clarity. We jump in the middle of a problem, but we carry it through to whatever extent we can, we can to find an answer. And then we just find the next thing. But with a human-made puzzle, you have the satisfaction of being completely in control. You start the challenge from the beginning and you move all the way to the end. Unless it's my case where the missing piece was, right? It was, it never showed up. But that's a satisfaction. You don't get much in real life. You feel in control and that's a great feeling. Well, if you were Israel and you saw this box of scattered puzzle pieces spread out on the table, you would look at that. As a believing Jew, you would look at that and say... I don't know how this is going to go together. Because we're not in control. 
God is weaving this master plan. And we can't make this stuff up. And now look what he says here at the end. As concerning the gospel, the good news, they are enemies for your sakes. They are not gentle. They are, they are hostile to the gospel. What is touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as you in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God has concluded or enclosed them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. This is how God is working things out. He's put them in a stupor here. Here, a spiritual sleep. That's what they wanted here. They didn't want the Messiah. And so he has done this and he's, he, he's, he's opening wide this door of mercy to the Gentiles here. But he's not done with Israel. And all Paul can say about God's plan is these verses in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor or advisor, who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Paul is saying, God's the master puzzle. Put her together. <laughs> He's the one who wraps us all up. He's the one whose ways are past finding out in this plan written from Genesis to Revelation. I was thinking about this this morning. Well, how does this affect us today? We're mostly Gentile uh, uh, group here, and, and uh, obviously there's the application here of, of, uh, of uh, how we need to understand Israel and also not, not get on our high horse. Well, I was thinking about Israel here. Israel, the, the majority of Israel saw themselves as, as good people. There's, they didn't see themselves as hardened to God's will. In fact, the Jews during Paul's time saw Israel as, we were, we're, we're, we're this lone outpost of God's righteousness among these pagan Gentiles. And now they find out the people of God here extends beyond Israel and He's letting Gentiles in here. The church is different from Israel, obviously, in many ways, but there's a tendency that we can have too, can't we? To have hardened hearts. To see our own goodness as our own product instead of Jesus' work in us. Israel's hardening let us in. We can't be lazy and arrogant because God has been kind to us as Gentiles. God's original promise to Israel means he's going to finish his plan. God has not rejected his people here. And Israel's stumbling here plays a role in God's plan. It's like Paul is describing this chain reaction that none of us could have figured out. This is a little incomplete here, but think about it. Look at it here. So out of all the world, God chose Israel. But out of Israel, there's only a remnant there that were their, their, their hearts were, were true hearts to God here. And out of that remnant, he has a Jewish boy born from a very poor family of a virgin. 
who in, for 30 years or so labors without people really knowing much about him. And then after 30 years, he begins his three-year ministry. Right? And during those three years, he raises up disciples, makes disciples. And those 12 disciples, representing kind of the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel here, those 12 disciples here, um, uh, got he, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he commissions to spread the good news about this Messiah, the living Messiah, the exalted and throne king here to the world and his saving power through the cross. And God builds a church, a New Testament church. And people from the world are brought into relationship with God through the Messiah, through God's people, the church. And then the last thing here that's not on the screen here is what God will do with the future of Israel as well. But think about this. This narrowing and this widening, right? We can't make this stuff up. It shows us something about our God. And I don't know where each one of you are. And I know the struggles and trials you're facing in your life, but I do want you to know that this passage here tells us this very clearly, that God's power can draw good out of any evil. His power can draw good out of any evil. God is true to His truth. Behold the kindness and severity of the Lord, right? He doesn't make exceptions. He doesn't play favorites. Every human being approaches God through faith and depends on His kindness and grace. That's the only way. That's the narrow door. Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, popular or unpopular. And the only way all of us are here together this morning is through that narrow. We're spattered with the blood of the Messiah. We're made alive and given new hearts through his resurrection. And so it's equal here. Oh yeah, we got different gifts that God uses for different ways. But he uses those to build up his church. Not to set up set us up any higher. Just because I'm the person standing here doesn't mean I'm better than anybody else. It's just this is the role that I have here in this economy of Jesus' church here at Salt Hope. God's true to his truth. He can draw good out of any evil. He's at work still. Because the fullness of the Gentiles hasn't happened yet. And he's at work among the Jewish people still as well. Because there's a trickle of Jews coming into Jesus' kingdom as well. Who can know the mind of the Lord? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I wonder this morning as you sit here, maybe you're like some of the Jewish people there that Paul writes about who were just assumed they were part of God's covenant family. But it has never been personally appropriated by faith in the one Messiah. Oh, you've heard all the things. You've had shared experiences with people, but it's never become personal to you. And I wonder if today is a day where you will turn from trusting in your own goodness or your own stupor that you put yourself in. And you'll turn to the one true Messiah who died on the cross for your sins and rose again to give you his righteousness and calls you to himself.
look at this room, and it's a room full of people that have expressed faith in Jesus Christ for the most part. And I wonder if perhaps there's some young people in here who you're just kind of riding your parents' coattails. But it's never been personal for you. Today is the day of deliverance. I think back at that verse in Romans chapter 11 and verse 26. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For he, for this is my covenant, and I shall take away their sins. And he pictures this champion riding into Israel to rescue them. And friends, through the word of this gospel message, Jesus has ridden into our midst to rescue us from ourselves. What a powerful thing. And so, those who do not know the Messiah and have a relationship with him, he has done what is necessary to do that. And he's calling you on this day to turn and trust in him. Will you do it? Will you receive him? And those who have received him, he's brought you into his family to become his children. And brothers and sisters here who know the word of God, are you guarding against hardened hearts? Are you just too used to it? Or do you need to get back to the mercy that God showed you? And say with Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And respond in a humility, in an empowerment to have the Messiah's life being lived through you day by day. To say no to self and yes to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have made the way. Lord, take your word. It's your word that brings life. Take it and do its perfect work in your children and in the lost. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has not relied alone on Jesus for their deliverance, that you would not let them rest until they have turned to you. Lord, thank you for your promise here of your persevering power that you complete what you say you will do, that you are true to your truth, and there are no exceptions to that, that you do not play favorites, that you have provided the only way through faith that depends on your kindness and grace to the work of the Messiah. And Lord, fashion us into his image more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I will sing his prayer.